listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Unworthy or worthless, there is a difference. Which are you? What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And you've got to settle this issue of whether you are unworthy or worthless in God's sight. Which are you? There is a difference. There's a world of difference in this life that will make a world of difference in the life to come. Which are you? Are you unworthy or worthless? In our Father's Word, Luke chapter 7, turn with me, beginning in verse 1. If you have a smartphone, you have a tablet, follow along using the God Factor app, the Bible tab in the God Factor app, or do it old school with ink and paper. Luke chapter 7, in our Father's Word, by the time we're done, we will have gone through the entire Gospel of Luke. Not today. I'm talking about maybe a year, two years from now. There's no rush. There's so much here in this passage of Scripture. I was actually struggling with, Lord, how can we possibly cover all that's here in your matchless Word in just one message? It's not possible. In just the ten verses that we're going to cover today, we're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg. Look with me in our Father's Word, Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, speaking of Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture, and it marks a turning point in the life, the ministry of Jesus. It's a turning point in Luke's Gospel. It presents to us a significant turn of events. Jesus has come down off the mountainside. He's given his most famous of all the sermons. The Sermon on the Mount is how we refer to it. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. All of these things have happened. Jesus grew up as a boy in his childhood home was Nazareth, but as an adult, he made Capernaum the place where he hung his hat. And here he's in Capernaum, and notoriety, the word about Jesus, the original social media, word of mouth, we know it well here in York, Pennsylvania. 
Word had gotten out about Jesus to some non-Jewish people. People who were being moved by God, stirred by God. One such a man was the centurion, a non-Jew. Now God was at work in the life of this centurion because he's the guy, as we read this, this particular account, he's the guy whom God stirred to provide the money for the synagogue. That's a significant thing, that somebody who would otherwise be considered to be hostile toward Jews, and Jews would be hostile toward the occupying forces. This guy's under Roman authority. He's a centurion sent to keep the people in order with about a hundred soldiers under his command. He's making about 10 to 15 to 20 times the money that a regular soldier would be making. A centurion is somebody who would be seasoned in battle, very capable, battle-worn, battle-ready, knows how to kill somebody. He's like a lot of Italians. I can say that because I'm Italian. If you say that and you're not, you better sleep with your lights on tonight. Of course, I'm joking. I've learned to say that here in York. But Jesus isn't joking when it comes to directing his attention towards somebody who he finds irresistible. And the centurion is an unlikely player in this unfolding drama about the movement of God and how God moves and the kind of people that God finds attractive regardless of who they are, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their color, their spiritual background. God is concerned with and interested in where you are today. Where are you today in your walk with God? It makes a difference in God's movement in your life. The centurion is a wealthy man, not only adept at knowing how to take people out with the sword, but also somebody who has a reputation for being as a centurion, somebody who's got wisdom, somebody who knows how to deal diplomatically with other people, as he demonstrates here. Somebody who's got wisdom and knowledge. He'd have to be able to do that to have men under his control. He'd have to be able to do that in this particular case to have the kind of money he had, the kind of money he had to be able to build the synagogue with his money. And the interesting thing is that he's not a Jewish person, but God is using him. God's moving through him. Now, if you're a Jewish person and the occupying forces are in your area and you know from the scriptures that the Messiah is for the Jewish people to deliver the Jewish people and you don't yet have the full understanding that we have today with hindsight, as we'll see today, you would not necessarily think very fondly about the occupying force. The Roman soldiers, a Roman centurion set there to be on an outpost, to be a policeman, to be a tax collector, to make sure that taxes were paid to Caesar in that regard. This is a classic case of being occupied by forces that you don't like. You don't want them there. You want to be set free. And this guy is being used by God with his money, with his influence, but most importantly, with his particular character trait that Jesus finds absolutely irresistible. Did you catch it? Verse 2, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death and was highly valued by him. The centurion is demonstrating this attitude towards somebody who others would think is disposable. Go get another servant. The doulos is the word that's used. A bond servant, somebody who was under the rule of the centurion sent to do his bidding. 
Whatever the centurion wanted him to do, however he wanted it to be done, that's what he was. He was sold into a life of slavery. This centurion is being counterintuitive. He's being countercultural by caring for, having mercy that Jesus just got done teaching about and talking about. We spent weeks discussing it. This centurion is demonstrating a mercy toward his servant that's exemplary. He cares about this guy who's under his rule, under his authority, who is at the point of death. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, or verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. Look at the diplomacy here. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. This man has demonstrated to Jesus a character trait that's not common, whether you're Jewish, whether you're a Gentile, whether you live in 21st century America or whether you live in other parts of the world, it is a rare trait, highly prized by God. And this unlikely player, this non-Jew, this guy who's a member of occupying forces in a land that's not his own, demonstrates it. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But Jesus came to him. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And Jesus ends up healing the centurion's bondservant. Jesus finds a trait in that centurion that's absolutely irresistible. It is the trait of humility. The centurion makes his case and says, I'm not worthy, but the Jewish people, the elders, the ones who should have known better, think that he is worthy. This man's worthy. Hey, he's got a lot of money. He's got the power. He's got the prestige. In fact, he built the house of worship for us. He's worthy for you to do this for him. There is a ping-ponging back and forth between the Jewish people and the centurion's attitude. And one of those attitudes is the one that Jesus finds pleasing and attractive, magnetic. It's the attitude of humility. The centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of this visitation. And he demonstrates a trait that you would demonstrate in your life if you're not careful, if you don't understand rightly about God, if you don't have a correct view of yourself, the view that God has of you, you could make the same mistake. Perhaps you've made it before. Perhaps you're in process of making it repeatedly. Because what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And theologians get it wrong. Very well-educated, well-meaning people get it wrong. They're unable to make a distinction between being unworthy and being worthless. There's a world of difference. And good men get it wrong all the time. Well-meaning men get it wrong all the time. A number of years ago, I was at a church planning conference down in Florida. 
and a very well-educated man who had been responsible in part for helping to plant hundreds of churches around the world, teaching at a seminary, stands up, very well-educated man, stands up and says, listen guys, you need to understand that you're nothing but a bunch of garbage. Every single one of you is just a worthless piece of garbage. You should be lucky and thankful to God that he can use you for anything. And if you're a member of the Nighttime Bible Reading Society, reading the Bible at night, lights off, sunglasses on, and one eye closed, you might twist Scripture too, thinking that you're being noble and honoring God all day long in making a statement like that, but there is an important distinction that needs to be made between being unworthy of a movement of God, unworthy of the grace of God, not deserving the goodness of God, not being in a position to demand anything from God, not being anything other than somebody who is humble, in need of all of those things. There's a difference between seeing yourself as being unworthy and seeing yourself as being completely worthless, deserving to be trampled upon, deserving to be thrown out, deserving to be cast out. Listen, if you were junk, Jesus would not have died for you. For God so loved the world. Last time I checked, I was in it. And you were too. Everybody who comes into this earth, into this planet, every single one of us is part of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus wouldn't die for junk. God the Father wouldn't have given what was priceless in his sight for something that was disposable, you. If you were disposable. Many well-intentioned people with great educations and years of experience, planting dozens of churches, teaching in theological seminaries, have this idea of worm theology that you're garbage, you're junk, your refuse, but then you have a hard time explaining the love of God that while I was a soul sinner, while I was a sinner, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Think about the price tag that you could possibly put on the life of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. What kind of a price tag can you put on that? Is it possible to put a price tag on the life of Jesus Christ? How then can we say that Jesus would die for junk and die for garbage? It makes no sense whatsoever. It's completely unbiblical. Yes, we are not worthy of the blood of Jesus, but we are worth the priceless, matchless sacrifice of the one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth Son of God. I've never met somebody who has been highly motivated to love and serve God with the right motives who thought that God saw them and viewed them as a piece of garbage. And that could be your problem. If you see yourself as a worthless piece of garbage, you'll never be able to worship and serve God with a motivation 
that is freeing and that freedom of motivation and worshiping and serving God and loving him comes when you realize that although I'm not worthy of the blood of Jesus, I am worth a great deal because while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. God ransomed me. He rescued me. He shed his own blood, the blood of his one and only son, so that I, so that you, yes, even you, could have a closeness, intimacy, the removal of all your sins, not just some of them. And when you get your life straight with God, or I should say when God gets your life straight, when you give your life to Jesus personally for the forgiveness of your sins, and God makes your life right, you not only get to enjoy Him here, but forever in His presence. You're going to live forever. It's just a matter of where. When you have personal faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the priceless, matchless gift of God for the forgiveness of your sins, you cross over from eternal separation from Him, which is death, to eternal life with Him here and now. And for those who don't receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they stay in a perpetual, eternal state of separation from God. Which is it? Are you unworthy or are you worthless? What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. It is the driving force behind everything you do and everything you don't do. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. I am begging you. I am pleading with you. I am on my knees. And I am literally begging and pleading, Oh, Father, would you help your people right now to get a right understanding of you because it will set them free. You want to be motivated in your walk with God to serve Him like never before, to enjoy Him, to draw near to Him? You need to gaze and contemplate that you're unworthy of what He did. You were a pig wallowing in the mud, but underneath all the mud, is a person of worth in God's sight. Jesus wouldn't have died for junk. Now the centurion, he demonstrates something that maybe you've demonstrated in your life. I know that I have. We've all done it from time to time, and we do it whenever we do not rightly understand God. The centurion does the classic, come here, go away. Hey, Go get Jesus. I'm going to send some of my homeboys, some of my Jewish elders, friends. They owe me one. They owe me a favor. I paid for their synagogue. Go get Jesus. Bring him over here. My servant. I've been your servant as a centurion building you this synagogue. Now, my servant is sick at the point of death. Go do me a favor. Go get Jesus. And so maybe to his surprise, God begins to move on his behalf. Have you ever asked God to do something and God begins to do it and you say, wait a second, it's happening. I asked you to change my spouse and you're changing them. I don't know how to handle a new spouse. You better get used to it because God is in the business of changing lives. When you ask God to do something and you ask in faith, you need to watch with expectancy that God will do above and beyond exceedingly. Dream your biggest dream. God's outdone it already. God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can dream or imagine on your best day. 
The whole point behind asking God to move in humility is that what if God answers your prayer? Are you asking God for things in your life that would honor Him? That you have the assurance based on His Word that when you ask for it, God can move? The centurion does the classic thing that you and I do all the time. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Come here, God. I need your help, God. Go away, God. I'm worthless. Go away, God. You possibly, no way you could possibly be concerned about my life, let alone the life of somebody who I'm over and seeing some affair of my life, some concern of my life. How could you possibly be concerned with the billions of people on this planet at any given time, let alone since the beginning of time? How could you possibly be concerned with my affairs, with my concerns, because God loves you more than you could even imagine? You're worth a great deal to Him. No, you're not worthy, neither am I. But this centurion sends that delegation knowing that he has a real need. And Jesus sees that need and breaks the cultural boundaries of the day. You see, because up to this time, Jesus had been ministering to the Jewish people. The Jewish people understood very clearly from the Old Testament, which was their testament, not the Gentile testament, that the Messiah was for them. And they had expected and anticipated that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from Roman oppression, from the here and now. The difficulties that they had in this world, this life that they were experiencing then and there, just like many of us get concerned and consumed about the affairs of this life, not realizing that there's a spiritual life, there's a spiritual world which is of prime concern to God. And so while the Jewish people were hung up and caught up in the there and then, the here and now of Roman oppression in the material world, expecting the Messiah to be a deliverer from the Roman citizens, they were completely overlooking their need for deliverance from sin. And God uses an unlikely player, a centurion, a non-Jewish person, to demonstrate faith that Jesus says, not in a sarcastic way, not in a ridiculing way, not in a derogatory way, but in a true comparative way. I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. It causes Jesus to be amazed. More importantly, it draws Jesus, even though this centurion is struggling with whether or not he should follow through and having Jesus come and act on his behalf, knowing that Jesus is capable of doing the impossible. Jesus overcomes the centurion's shortfalls. He overcomes your shortfalls, your mistakes in your view of God. Because the centurion demonstrates humility which is having an appropriate understanding that none of us is worthy of a movement of God on our behalf. You just got to make sure that you're not the one taking yourself out of God's movement with wrong, faulty, stinking thinking. And how many times do we do that? We begin to pursue God. We begin to ask God, God, move on my behalf. My need is great. Here the centurion has a situation where it's life or death. That person is hanging in the balance. And he goes to the only person that he knows can do something. And God literally 
starts to move on his behalf and then he begins to take himself out of the equation. What if God had changed his mind and left it up to the centurion to decide? God's bigger than your understanding of him. But your understanding of him is vitally important for your own walk with God. What you believe about God, about whether you're unworthy, which is appropriate and true and humble, or whether you are worthless, which is not true, not biblical, and will derail you. What you believe about God is vitally important. If you want to look at whether or not a person has a right view of God or a wrong view of God, right motivation or wrong motivation for living, you look at how they're living their life. Look at how you've been living your life up to this point this past week. I can guarantee you that all of us suffer from spiritual amnesia. We all forget the truth about God. We all forget the truth of who we are in relationship to Him. And therefore, sin is often, I think, appropriately described as temporary insanity. Because nobody in their right mind would willingly stop serving and loving a God like the God of the Bible. That although you're not worthy, Christ died for you. Although you don't understand the goodness of God, the kindness of God. God pursued you and God sees when you are a person of humility. God finds humility attractive and irresistible. You know, the interesting thing about this particular passage of Scripture is that it's a turning point in a fundamental way. Genesis chapter 3. Look with me in our Father's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have this amazing statement made by God Himself as a result of the fall, which is more appropriately probably called the crash. I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, speaking of the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the gospel spoken in Genesis, that it's one person coming as a descendant of Eve, one person who will come from Eve, who will defeat the serpent, who we know from Scripture is the devil. Spoken of way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15, the promise of the Messiah is given right there. And we know if we read further on in the passage, they had sown leaves together for themselves to cover up their nakedness. And God says, no, it's not good enough. There must be the shedding of blood. God provides skins for them to cover up their nakedness. That's the gospel again being preached that there must be a shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the book of Leviticus says, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And even there in Genesis chapter 3, God is demonstrating and looking forward to the day when there would be an ultimate sacrifice provided through his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth who would die on the cross. The gospel is being preached from earliest of times. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when Eve, if you look at the original language, when Eve says, with the help of the Lord, I've given birth to a man, there's an expectancy in that she had a sense of immediacy that very soon she would give birth to the Savior, to the Messiah. Not even understanding what all of that meant, but how 
hard it must have been to have walked in the presence of God in the garden and to experience the very tangible, literal presence of God, to now be out of that, to have the memory of it, something that you and I don't even have today, and to know the promise of God was that somebody would be coming who will crush the head of the serpent. If you could only have gone back, Eve, and done it again. If Adam, you could have only gone back and done it again with hindsight. That's 2020. If you would have gone back, of course you would have done it differently. But the fact of the matter is they didn't. And here we are outside of Eden today. But there's a sense in which Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, when Eve gives birth to Cain, she has an immediate sense that this is that. This must be the one that God promised. And it wasn't. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, look with me at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The covenant from which all the other covenants in the Bible go back to and point is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And look at this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This idea that's promised, the word that's used for seed, is an individual. It's not a plural. It's an individual promise of a person that would be coming from the line of Abraham. At this point, the line of Abram, that there would be one descendant from Abram who would, who would come into the world through whom every nation on the earth would be blessed. Every nation, not just the Jewish people. This goes way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. You say, well, what's the big deal here in regard to Luke chapter 7? It's a huge deal because Jesus is giving us a foretaste of what you and I now enjoy. At that particular time, the Gentiles were not included the way they are included today. If we look at the book of Ephesians in chapter 3, look with me in Ephesians chapter 3 beginning. In verse 4, Paul the Apostle says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been now revealed, but to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a huge deal that Jesus is deliberately reaching out to a centurion, a non-Jewish person, and demonstrating that Jesus is for all people everywhere because all people everywhere are in need of a genuine movement of God. All people everywhere are in need of salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 echoes this. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The whole idea of Scripture. The whole idea of what's being presented here is that there was coming a day in Jesus' day when he goes and he's in 
talking in Capernaum and he's with the centurion, the sense was very real. Jesus is nodding, looking forward to the day that you and I now enjoy in hindsight. That Jew and Gentile together, one family, the church, the mystery. This was a mystery to the prophets of the Old Testament. It was a mystery up until the day that the church was born on the the day of Pentecost. And how it must have perplexed the Jewish people that Jesus was reaching out to others, whether they were Jew or not Jew, demonstrating mercy, demonstrating kindness, reaching out to people who would recognize that they are unworthy, of the presence of Jesus, unworthy of the blessing of God on their lives, but yet it is that sense of unworthiness, it is that sense of humility which God finds absolutely irresistible, an absolute prerequisite before Jesus can move in your life. Thinking that you're worthless is not going to get God to move as much as understanding that you are unworthy. Oh, when you understand you're unworthy, God will move heaven and earth to reach out to you, to pursue you. To come in and do what you cannot do for yourself. And that's what we see here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is reaching out to a man who's an unlikely player, but in God's perspective, from God's vantage point, anytime anybody recognizes that they're unworthy of the presence of Jesus Christ, unworthy of the forgiveness of God that's available through Jesus, unworthy of God to do anything on their behalf, that's when your weakness becomes your strength. That's when you become attractive to God and God can move in your hour of need. doesn't matter whether you're black or whether you're white. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're living in the United States or whether you live in Central America or in Mexico, whether you're Canadian, it does not matter. It doesn't matter if you live in Moscow or Mongolia or if you're Chinese or if you're Thai, for example. You could be somebody who's from Thailand, Jesus is for you. You could be Australian, living down under, and Jesus knows how to pick you up, forgive you of your sins and move on your behalf. You could live in Peru, you could live in Brazil, it doesn't matter. You could be living near the Panama Canal or in beautiful Belize or Costa Rica. Jesus died for you. Jesus understands that you are unworthy of any movement of his on your behalf, but it's that sense of not being worthy. It's that humility that God finds attractive. You could be living in France munching on cheese right now by the Seine River. You could be in Rome. Portugal, Spain, it does not matter. Jesus died for you. You could be living in Africa. You could be living in Madagascar. Jesus is for all people everywhere. And Jesus is demonstrating that he will always give an outstretched hand to anybody, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter what people think of you. If you will stretch your hand out to Jesus, Jesus will extend his as well. God is in the business of doing in us, to us, with us, and through us what we cannot do for ourselves. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. 
To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.